Alaska seems so. Uh, I, I guess I'll use the word exotic and hard to reach, but we're really not. You know, we're like a two and a half hour flight from Seattle. We've really been trying to push that message out. And the reality is if you lived in Seattle, you could be sitting on the chair at Eagle Crest before you could be sitting on the chair most days at Crystal or at Stevens. By the time you sit in traffic and fight through the parking lot and everything that goes along with the crowds. And we've started to have people figure that out. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Big, big milestone for the storm today as the podcast enters Alaska for the first time. I can hardly wait to get there. But first, I have to send you over to stormskiing.com and encourage you to please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Listen, I know some of you are pure podcast app bro, and I respect that. But I have to tell you, if you are only listening to the pod, you are missing a lot. There is a full article that accompanies this podcast that is filled with maps, statistics, and additional background and context that will make your listening experience far richer. The storm, by the way, goes all year long. When the rest of the world has moved on to golf and sailboats, I am still breaking down the world of lift surf skiing with at least 100 articles every single year delivered directly to your inbox. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. First, quick word from my partner. Today's episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season is in full swing, which means more riders, and more riders means more lift maintenance issues. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, Hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beeves.es backslash storm so they know I sent you. That's B-E-A-V dot E-S backslash storm. Episode 118, Eagle Crest, Alaska, General Manager Dave Scanlon. We all know the big mountain western skiing is in the midst of an existential crisis. Or maybe better put, people who want to live and work in the mountains are facing an existential crisis. Traffic, crowds, and lack of housing often combine and conspire to make living and working in the mountains as difficult and as frustrating as possible. But what if I told you there was a hack? What if I told you that there's a ski area that averages 350 inches of average annual snowfall, but where a weekend powder day on the mountain can draw fewer than 900 people? What if I told you that this ski area was completely immune from skier day traffic because there is no way to drive there from the outside world? 
and that the city that owns the ski area is home to 31,000 people who, as a whole, earn well above the national average and national median income. And what if I told you that jobs are plentiful and workers are in demand? and that most of those 31,000 people are less than half an hour drive from the ski area parking lot. And what if I told you that this city sat in one of the world's most beautiful places, that the temperature rarely dips below 20 degrees in the winter or above 70 degrees in the summer, and that despite its remoteness, it was just a two and a half hour flight from Seattle. Well, there is such a place, and as you've probably guessed by now, it is Eagle Crest, Alaska. This may be one of the last great undiscovered ski areas in America, but it doesn't need to be. It is incredibly easy to get to Eagle Crest. Chances are you already have lift tickets to the ski area. Eagle Crest has been an Indy Pass partner from day one, and the ski area is a member of both the Powder Alliance and Freedom Pass, plus a number of independent reciprocal coalitions, meaning there is a decent chance that your local season pass already has a partnership with Eagle Crest that will get you on the lifts. Look, nothing is perfect. Due to its remoteness, life in Juneau is expensive. The 1,620-foot vertical drop is admittedly smaller than the total vert at many western mountains, but reframe this and consider how much terrain some of the West's best ski pods offer. The KT-22 Express at Palisades Tahoe, for example, is only 100 feet taller than Eagle Crest. Supreme at Alta is only 1,200 vertical feet, maybe another 100 if you hike up Catherine's. Thunder at Jackson Hole is less than 1,500 vertical feet. 1,650 feet of vert is more than enough to play with, and while Eagle Crest comes in under 700 acres of skiable terrain, a major expansion will come online when the new used gondola that Eagle Crest recently took delivery on from Europe goes up the mountain within the next couple years. But Let's hear it from the guy who's directing the whole operation and whose mission, as he states it, is to make Eagle Crest, quote, the best ski area in the world, end quote. Let's go. My guest today has been the general manager of Eagle Crest, Alaska since 2017. Eagle Crest delivers 640 acres of terrain served by four double chairs, on a 1,620-foot vertical drop. The ski area averages 350 inches of snowfall per year. Located in Juneau, Alaska, Eagle Crest is only accessible by plane or ferry. Eagle Crest is the only ski area that is a member of the Indy, Powder Alliance, and Freedom Passes. Prior to joining the team at Eagle Crest, he spent four years as general manager at Mount Abram, Maine. He has also founded a tie-dye t-shirt company, co-founded an organization called Mountain Riders Alliance to support small ski areas, spent six years as chairman of the Land Use Advisory Planning Commission in Hope, Alaska, and worked on chairlift construction crews, among many other things. Dave Scanlon is my guest. Dave, so great to connect. Welcome to the storm. This is my first episode focused on Alaska, and I am so fired up to bring the podcast north. How are things today in Juneau, Alaska? Oh, thanks so much for having me, Stuart. Couldn't be more excited to be with you on the storm here. A huge fan of the work that you do. And Thank you. things are uh, very good in uh, Eagle Crest in Juneau, Alaska today as we uh, got another uh, eight inches of snow overnight. So uh, we are uh, back into the snow zone. 
Uh, I think we're uh, going on a, a 15 days straight of snowfall. Uh, we like to do these uh, consistent snowfall streaks. So uh, things are really good <laughs> on the mountain. That is beautiful to hear. I, the West has been getting hammered all year. However, that's been a little south of you, I believe. So so how did the season start and how pumped up are you to have be getting the snow train finally? Oh man, the, we're we're super pumped up to finally be getting cooler temperatures. For us, it's never a problem of are we getting moisture. It's how is the moisture coming. So uh, we we actually had a decent start to the season as far as uh, we had a nice snowmaking window and really nailed it on our snowmaking to get the bottom third of the mountain, the major arteries covered, which let us get up and rolling. Then we kind of fell into our typical uh, coastal rainforest weather pattern where uh, things were warm and we were getting uh, rain halfway up the mountain, picking up some nice snow up top, but uh, we were in that really warm pattern. Had a lot of strange inversions happening this year as well. We had a a couple high-pressure windows that we thought we were going to make snow, and you probably could have made snow downtown Juneau and uh, 25 degrees in town and 33 degrees in the parking lot. So, uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> the, the the joys of a coastal rainforest. The weather always has you on your toes. So, I think a lot of what you just said probably took listeners by surprise, Dave. I think a lot of us down in the lower 48 here, Alaska, and we think north, we think cold, and we think west, we think high elevation. But Eagle Crest is a coastal ski area, not that high elevation. So set this up for us. What kind of, what are the challenges of the particular ecosystem that you're sitting in there on coastal Alaska? Yeah, no, that's great. You know, and I thought the same when I moved to Alaska back in 99, you know, and the first time we went from uh, like a 10 below zero and the next day it was like 40 degrees and raining three quarters of the way up the mountain. You know, I was just absolutely blown away. And uh, so we do, we get in these really strange weather patterns where we'll have these big, uh, big low pressures that'll come straight up from Hawaii, you know, so the typical term in Alaska and you hear it down in Tahoe too, the Pineapple Express sets up and sometimes it just locks in. And so we'll be really challenged on uh, where that snow rain line is. And uh, a lot of times just, it's really moist at the base. And it's, uh, you know, for the regular diehard hardcore skiers, the top half of the mountain is usually absolutely fantastic, but probably one of the only uh, ski areas, uh, maybe excluding Alaska up north, where um, the ski attire will be uh, Grundon's commercial fishing uh, rubber (laughs) gear. You know, everybody's out skiing in their Grundon's and uh, have smiles ear to ear. And as long as you know how to wear uh, the right clothing. The riding experience is usually really fantastic, but we do flirt with that snow rain line and these temperature regimes, depending on which way the moisture flow is pointing at us. So the Grundens, the the work gear, the fishing gear, how much of that is a function purely of the weather and how much of that just reflects the reality of Juno, the blue collar working class town where people are not worried about showing up in the latest Helly Hansen gear or Bogners or whatever. They're just out there to have fun, go skiing and gear up for the weather because they're used to it? You know, uh, I I would say maybe half and half, Um, you know, part of the product of the climate, but part of it is just, it's the local culture. You know, we have an amazing group of really talented local skiers, you know, uh, being ski bums that they are, a lot of them make their living in the commercial fishing industry. You know, they'll fish all summer and a lot of them will go out for a little spring crab opener. So they'll disappear, you know, mid spring. They'll go out and 
hammer a two-week crab fishery, and then they're back out on the mountain, you know? So it, it's kind of half and half, but we really appreciate the nature of our culture, and it, it's so low-key. And even though the, the talent level of our skiers is really high, somewhat of a byproduct of our snow, our climate, our terrain, but we don't have the big um, uh, testosterone bro bra attitude. It's just this really amazing low-key small town experience. It's We feel so blessed. I mean, what an amazing ski bum job to, to work in the fishing industry in the summer and then be able to go and ski in the winter. You know, talk about Juno a little bit and, and set this up for us because it's a place that even though it's part of America, it's probably foreign to most folks listening. You know, it's a little bit hard to get to. And as I mentioned in the intro, you have to fly or take a ferry there. And as we as we look across the West and you look at ski towns, a lot of them are becoming unaffordable, particularly the ones that are by big mountains or to get the kind of snowfall we're talking about here. Just talk about Juneau as a town and then more specifically as a ski town and ski town culture. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Really unique town. So Juneau is actually the the state capital of Alaska down here in the southeast. Our population, we're hovering around 30,000 residents. So in my opinion, you know, I I spent many uh, 13 years living up north in really small town Alaska on the Kenai Peninsula. And and Juneau is just, you know, in my personal opinion, such a great size community. Because you have a lot of the, uh, I'll air quotes, uh, city amenities. We got Home Depot and Costco, you know, the things you need for life, you know. But it's still 30,000 people. You're not sitting in big traffic. It's not congested, you know. So our, you know, economy, we kind of have a, a, a three-legged stool. You know, there's a, a being the state capital, as you can imagine, a decent amount of state government work. Uh, we've got the Coast Guard here, and then we've got commercial fishing as another big leg of that economic stool. And then, you know, we have this really intense and rapidly growing summer tourism industry. So um, interesting economic uh, dynamics here. And as everywhere else, it's really interesting time right now for Juno. We're kind of at this crossroads and suffering the labor shortage in every single sector that you could imagine. You know, um, Eagle Crest is owned by the city of Juno. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but professional positions open everywhere. And then as a ski town, really unique, you know, we don't, I think we only have 40 miles of road and like 280 miles of trail from the old mining days. You know, Juneau was born as a mining boom town. And uh, so wherever you live in town, the furthest away you are from the skier is 45 minutes. A lot of people are as close as 15 to 20 minutes from the heart of the downtown corridor you're only 25 minutes even driving through a snowstorm to get into the parking lot. So it's so close and accessible. It's, it is really just kind of an amazing conglomeration of factors that is really attractive to to a lot of folks that are um, that having a good ski area is an important factor of their lives, right? And we talk about this regularly when we're advocating for budget dollars with our city assembly. If Eagle Crest were to leave Juneau, we'd probably lose half of our young professional working class families because they could work and live anywhere right now. And Eagle Crest is kind of the glue that keeps them here in Juneau, you know, uh, and, and is a huge factor. And then in the summertime, you know, obviously commercial fishing industry is huge. We're right on the coast it is so beautiful. 
and the ability to go out and uh, on your recreational boat and fish for king salmon and halibut and crab, it's it is really amazing. So 30,000 people, plenty of jobs. That probably sounds pretty good to a lot of people listening right now. How does that translate to the ski experience? And, you know, I laid out the stats, 1,600 some vertical feet, 350 inches of snow falling. Look, skiers get hung up on vertical drop and stats, but let's be real. Most lifts aren't more than about 1,500 feet, and you can lap those pods all day. Even the really good ones like Thunderlift at Jackson Hole, for yep. example, is about 1,500 vertical feet, right? Yep, So, you, you know. If you keep the right context, that's that's plenty to play with. So given that population density and the difficulty of access, well, it's not really difficult access. I think it's just people people think it's difficult and that gets in their head. So what does that translate to when you show up at the ski hill? What do you actually find? You know, it's it's crazy. You know, so many days. I'll, even, I'll frame this up, you know, even a Saturday weekend average pow day for us. I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about what we would consider a pow day. Let's say five inches of new Saturday morning, first lift turns at nine o'clock and you show up to the maze at eight forty five. There's going to be 15 to 20 people in the maze. (laughs) It's it's crazy, Stuart. You know, and some of the locals are probably cringing if they heard me talking like this. Right. (laughs) Letting their secret out. But, you know, and and obviously midweek midweek days are are um, even more so. You know, it's you and your neighbors, you know, just living the good life. It's it's pretty amazing. And obviously we have our anomalies. This past Saturday, you know, uh, the storm just uh, kind of stalled out and we picked up 20 inches up top. And uh, uh, I was in the parking lot in our utility snowcat pushing snowbanks back for about an hour just watching, you know, car after car stream into the parking lot. And I kind of laughed at myself after I hear the horror stories of... Uh, parking problems at uh, some of our peers in the Northwest at Stevens Pass and other places. And I was like, God, this is what this must feel like. But, you know, so we have those anomaly days, you know, where, you know, it's the classic 20th powder day and um, a third of the town is coming to Eagle Crest. But on average, (laughs) it's um, it's just such a different low key experience than, you know, what we're seeing in the lower 48. And, you know, obviously I've been up here in Alaska now since uh, 99. So I know things have changed so much from the times, uh, the years that I was ski bumming down there. Uh, did my tour of duty at the Russell Lodge, University of Alta. And mm-hmm. uh, I know things are so different right now. You know, that was before any of the high speeders came in and uh, high speed quads and obviously the whole epic and icon, uh, past phenomenon. So, uh, we're kind of still stuck in the way I'll air quotes, the way things used to be. And we feel so blessed for it. Um, and, and then the ski area itself, as you, as, as we were talking, it, uh, the character of the terrain is so great. We have open boundaries. So when the, when we have our, our outer bowls open, our West bowl and East bowl terrain is open, open access to go beyond and, and some really great tasty side country terrain. And being that we have the highest road access in Juneau, we're kind of the, we're the go-to spot for the Alpine touring community. So everybody comes up here, whether you're going to ride the lift or you're just going to go touring, people will start in the Eagle Crest parking lot and they'll hike to all the mountains that surround us. It's a tight Canyon. So we've got steep profiles in every direction. So where the spot to go to? Unbelievable. I, I mean, what you're describing sounds like a fantasy land 
compared to what a lot of us are experiencing with weekend gridlock down here in the lower 48. So it, it, you know, I imagine sometimes Dave, you have to pinch yourself because as you mentioned, you moved to Alaska in 1999. You're actually a Midwestern guy. I'm a Midwestern guy as well. I grew up in Michigan. I, I actually just finished a tour of the Midwest. I, I just love skiing there. I, people were, were sort of bewildered by this on the lifts when I told them I was from New York city and, and, and visiting Minnesota to ski. They're like, don't you have bigger mountains out there? But I, I just really love the culture. So, so talk about that. Talk about growing up in the Midwest, growing up skiing in the Midwest and the culture there. Yeah. God, the Midwest breeds some good skiers, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Wilmot mountain was my home mountain, you know, nice. real close to Chicago, 230 vertical feet. And they're very proud mm-hmm. a mile wide. It looks like a landfill, like zero <laughs> trees, basically, unless you hike through the hole in the fence on state line on the far side and you'd go beat through the bushes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we loved it, you know, and, uh, I was an hour and a half away from Wilmot. So a decent drive for me, but the crew of skiers that came out of there at that point in time, you know, I was maybe a couple of years behind Matt Sturbins from forefront skis, you know, the place just put out some talent, you know, and we just, we were passionate you were either a, a stick dodger, as we'd call it, you know, or you were a mogul skier, right? So I was on the mogul side, you know, and that's what you'd do. You'd show up and um, night skiing was the thing. You'd rip bumps under the under the lights all night. By the time I got into high school, had the classic uh, 1968 Volkswagen camper van. We'd leave, uh, leave our town right after school on Friday night and uh, sleep in the parking lot all weekend and probably ski nine in the morning till 10 at night and just had the passion, you know, and it wasn't about powder, powder days. It was just the experience. It was being on the skis. It was ripping with your friends. It was, you know, this whole rat pack culture and, uh, it was really great. And it just, it turns out so many amazing skiers. You know, I'm sure you've experienced this, but you can't walk five feet in any mountain town in the Western United States and not trip over someone from the Midwest. So what is it you think about the Midwest that breeds this passionate type of skier? You know, that's such a good question. And, you know, we talk about that a lot and I think it's, it's just a different culture. You know, you fall in love with it, not for the hype of a powder day, but just for the feeling that you get when you're on your skis or snowboard, you know, and it's so freeing. And, you know, there's a lot of little ski areas just sprinkled around. And at that point in time, right, it was affordable. It was just commoners. It was Carhartts and jeans and, you know, farm clothing. And, you know, it wasn't all the hype. And, you know, I think it just it got a lot of people hooked in that era. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, it's still like that as far as the complete unpretentiousness of it and guys out there and their hunting gear. And and you know what's big now that was not in the 90s, at least in Michigan, and I'm not sure how it was in Wisconsin, but just this rise of terrain parks. And they had terrain parks, but they were framed as snowboard parks and they would chase the skiers out of there. But now they have all these really high-speed rope toes. And the kids just, these lifts move an amazing number of people. It's absolutely astonishing to watch. And these kids just lap and lap and lap these kickers. And they have these amazing terrain parks built. And it's just adding another element of Midwestern skiing where it's just, you know, you you do the same jump run, the same park 2,000 times in a season. And you're going to get pretty good. It's pretty amazing to watch. No, I'm glad you bring that up because it's so true. And I think the exciting thing about that 
is it um, allows these kids who their home mountains are there to really push their skill level in the park genre and have just as much equal opportunity as anywhere else. You don't need 4,000 vertical feet for a good terrain park, you know, and, and in, in my era before I left, we were just probably the birth of terrain parks. I think devil's head had like one of the first like actual terrain parks, but you're right. It was snowboard only. And you try to duck in there and they chase you out. And, of course, we'd always be building kickers in the mogul field and, you know, sideboards off the light posts <laughs> and patrol chasing us around, tearing down our kickers and yelling at us. You know, it's just such a different time. And so I think it's great, you know, the park culture, how it it kind of takes one genre of what we do and levels the playing field. You could become pro in park at Wilmot Mountain with 230 vertical feet. You know, it's uh, I think it's really fantastic. So you love the Midwest. I love the Midwest, but we both left. Uh, I, I left a couple of years after you did, 2002, and and you've had quite a journey since then. So so what took you out of the Midwest, Dave, and and where did you go next? Yeah, um, yeah, great question. So obviously, always dreamed of uh, skiing in the West. Took a couple of trips out west, you know, in my younger years, you know. My first uh, ever powder day experience at Jackson with like a foot of foot of new snow off the tram, you know, as a little Midwestern kid was just mind blown. Mm -hmm. Knew I needed to do that. So right when I graduated high school that summer, I actually went up to a smart mogul skiing camp up on the Blackcomb Glacier. And I knew already that I was going to be moving west that winter. And we were starting Mm -hmm. to have some chats with uh, some of our some of the kids, some of my crew at Wilmot about, you know, renting an apartment together out West. So, so I go to mogul camp cause I was a big mogul skier. I was really focused on that for a long time and do the smart mogul skiing camp. And lo and behold, I meet a, a, a guy at camp, probably the oldest person by, you know, eight to 10 years in the camp. Usually it's a bunch of young kids and another super passionate mogul skier from park city that happened to own his own cleaning company, him and his wife, Terry Mooney and really Duncan. And they offered me a job. They needed help. And uh, so hot dog, I came home and told the parents, hey, I'm moving to Park City. And I think three (laughs) weeks later, the Volkswagen camper was loaded up and I was on the road. So adventure time, you head west, set up shop in Park City. You mentioned Alta. So take us through that. Take us through your time in Utah. Yeah, yeah, super. So the first two years I was in Utah was spent in Park City. Still really focused on the mogul skiing, was doing the um, Intermountain Division mogul comps. I basically uh, ended up uh, getting the graveyard cleaning shift at Park City by wintertime that year. Probably the best ski bum job I could have. We won't go into mm-hmm. details there, but you can kind of imagine <laughs> what that might have looked like. And then uh, at that point in time, uh, Alpine Meadows was still owned by uh, Powder Corp. So uh, they were honoring our employee passes. So as soon as Park City closed, the the Volkswagens loaded up and spent a month uh, living at the campground in North Lake Tahoe and skiing Alpine Meadows every day. And then back up to to Blackcomb for the summer camp. And uh, they took great care of me, got a coursework job and a season's pass for the summer season at Blackcomb. And really unique time, right? That was right in the peak of the Canadian Air Force. And and Mike Douglas was like my mentor and coach for Smart Mogul Camp. And just, it was right at the dawn of the D-spin and uh, just 
everything blowing up. Candide was there and just watched it all go down this huge evolution of the sport just taking off, you know? So that was kind of my routine for a couple of years. Uh, and, uh, one year, the, the last year, second to last year, I left a little early, got back to park city and was able to slide in doing, uh, some lift construction with Doppelmeyer C tech. That was a kind of interesting time too. That was the old school park city gondola was being removed and replaced by their two, uh, payday high speed six packs. So worked a little bit on that and a little bit on two uh, fixed grip chairs over at Deer Valley. Then the following year did the same uh, routine up to uh, up to Blackcomb and left a little early. My mom was uh, battling some cancer. And so I uh, mm. did a trip back to the Midwest and uh, it was very clear I should be spending some time with mom in, the, in, in rural Illinois, suburbs of Chicago, and found this uh, company that was... Uh, Posted up right next to my friends, uh, was working in a vintage Volkswagen repair shop, company Chicago Dye Works, this tie-dye company. And lo and behold, of course, they were looking for workers. And so everything just kind of fell into place. I was able to spend a summer with mom and learn this crazy business of really high-volume tie-dye t-shirt production and sales, going to little uh, community craft shows and markets and city festivals and did that for the summer. Then I was back to uh, to Utah. And as a lot of competitive skiers go, I, I kind of hit the burnout point on mogul skiing. And growing up in the Midwest, I was always fascinated with tally skiing. So uh, I put some tally gear on one day and uh, tooled around with one of my buddies in Park City. I think that next that night I go to the mountaineering shop, right, and buy some Riva Classic cable tally bindings and some Arco <laughs> half leather, half plastic tally boots. I don't think I put Alpine skis on for another, I don't know, 10 years probably. Uh, you know, so you can imagine the transition then, um, falling in love with telemark skiing and of course, a, a job opening comes up at the Russell Lodge to uh, nighttime dishwashing and natural mm-hmm. transition. So uh, off I went on the Telemark powder skiing adventure uh, with a couple years at Alta. <laughs> so, you know, a couple years at Alta can turn into a lifetime at Alta pretty easily. It's a hard place to yank yourself out of. What eventually drew you up to Alaska and specifically Hope, Alaska, which is a town probably not a lot of folks are familiar with. So tell us about Hope and what drew you there. Yeah, so I don't I always had some attraction factor to Alaska. And so, you know, growing up in the Midwest, my parents were not outdoors people. So I actually had applications to like work in a commercial fishing cannery straight out of high school. And, you know, the parents were freaked out. They're like, come on. Alaska? They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. They're like, Colorado, Utah, can you break us into this thing? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I kind of appeased them and, you know, we did did our years there. And and so the timing just ended up being right. You know, uh, coming out of my, my second season at Alta, I had good transportation. And I so I just figured, okay, this is the time. And, and loaded up and wanted to see what Alaska is about. And uh, like so many people, I came to Alaska for the summer and uh, didn't leave for 13 years and uh, did my first summer. Uh, investigated some work in the in the Kenai Peninsula area, but it was really easy to find work up in Fairbanks. And I'd been looking for remote property in my travels, and and of course those travels led me to look at a couple of parcels of land up closer towards Denali National Park. And 
and lo and behold, what do I see here is a school bus and, uh, and, and uh, for sale right next to this property I was looking at. Then I started to see all of the same sort of events that I sold tie-dye t-shirts at the summer before working for Chicago Dye Works and thought, of, well, it's, this looks perfect. I, I know this program. So I buy the school bus and launch my own uh, t-shirt company up there in Alaska, started uh, living in the front half, making shirts in the back and got into the big state fairs. And that fall came back down from the Fairbanks area and was spending some time around Girdwood. And some uh, friends of mine in Girdwood had friends that were living in Hope and there were some other properties for sale in Hope. So we go over to visit. Drove into Hope, Alaska and was mind blown. It was like, this is what I've been looking for. You know, typical Chugach Mountains, just steep, dramatic mountains and this tiny little town. I mean, you're on population of 100 people. In the summer, it gets pretty bustling. There's a lot of whitewater rafting there, home of one of the Kenai Peninsula's best class five whitewater. But come fall, everybody leaves. It is ghost town. I mean, it is small town living to its maximum. So I find this piece of property and it, it just felt right. There's an old mining road that would go 14 miles uh, outside of town and uh, talk about snow machine access. I mean, at that point in time, it was just at the dawn of, you know, mountain sleds with two inch paddle tracks. And, you know, so came there and, you know, I was starting to chase some of the free ski comps and just saw this as like this little, humble town that I could just immerse in and train for free ski comps and have access to this radical terrain. And Alyeska is only an hour away. And uh, so I was fortunate enough, uh, bought this amazing piece of property, acre and a half with two little classic Alaska log cabins on it. And uh, the owner saw something in me that I wanted to be a part of the community. And it wasn't just going to be a vacation home and, and trusted me. And uh, lo and behold, about three weeks after uh, I bought my house, I end up meeting this uh, wonderful woman that was a skier and mountain biker, one of the only younger non-gold mining folks living in town, and uh, ended up being my my uh, current wife now. Uh, been together ever since. Uh, ever since we're going on twenty three years. I can't believe it. And now my ski partner, you know, we're lifelong skiers together and get to share that together. And, and, uh, so the adventure in Alaska started. Unbelievable. Again, tremendous setup and it sounds like you're doing pretty well there. And before I get back to why you moved back across the country again, tell me about the Mountain Riders Alliance, which I believe you started when you're living in Hope and correct me if I'm wrong, but talk about that organization, why you started it and what it did. Yeah, no, that's great. So being the experience and everything I saw in the, in the lower 48 in the ski industry, and, and here I go to a very, very different lifestyle, you know, in Hope, Alaska, and meeting all these local folks in the surrounding communities and just looking at watching all of the economic hardship that everyone had because there was just nothing happening in the wintertime. You know, in our town of Hope, we had some days when the only – business open was the post office, you know, and we were in jeopardy of our school closing because families were moving out and it was just really trying times. 
So uh, for um, when my wife and I got married, we spent our honeymoon down on the South Island in New Zealand, uh, riding all the high-speed nutcracker rope toes to the club fields there outside of Christchurch. And I was just mind blown. I was like, oh my God, like this is the essence of a community ski area. So I started to become real active. And uh, around that same time, I you know got appointed from the Kenai Peninsula Borough onto our land use advisory planning commission. And started to become really active in planning a community ski area just to provide a little economic activity to our neighboring communities, to this great little mountain, Manitoba Mountain. So maybe a year and a half after I was really getting that up and going, um, I see this post on the TGR forum from uh, Jamie Sheckman. You know, he's kind of throwing some bait out there. You know, if you could have your dream ski area, what would it look like? And he had been working on uh, creating a cooperative ownership to buy Shames Mountain at that point in time. And so we shared a lot of similarities and Jamie and I started brainstorming together and uh, brought one of our other co-founders in, Pete Blanchard. He was a finance guy that had just uh, graduated with an MBA from Presidio in San Francisco. And and we all started brainstorming of this um, concept of creating a kind of a consortium or a collaborative of the little guys of the small little ski areas, you know, and this was back in 2007. It was, you know, before the mega consolidation uh, that we've seen now with Vail and Altera and the other big players, but we were seeing the first indications of that and wanted to create some more strength for the little guys. So uh, obviously I'd already been working on the same sort of concept on Manitoba Mountain. It was a great synergy. Jamie was living down in Patagonia at that point in time. And, and so kind of from two ends of the world, we all came together and, and started this organization, Mountain Riders Alliance. What was, let's focus on Manitoba Mountain for a moment here. I'm, I'm looking at trail maps online. It, it looks like you did get it up and running. Is it still an active ski area? So Manitoba was an old historic ski area that that mm. had an original rope toe way back, I think, in the 50s and mm. ran for probably 15 years and then closed down. So we didn't actually get that one up and running. We were making some really good headway, and it helped that I was in the position I was in with the Kenai Peninsula Borough and was talking with the land managers all the time with work we were doing in our town in Hope. So it made that synergy really good for some good collaborative discussions. But then the opportunity came up as uh, Mountain Riders Alliance started to gain some partnerships and the opportunity came up for me to take the general manager position over at Mount Abram and really unique opportunity that I just had to jump on. You know, it helped further the mission of Mountain Riders Alliance and give me the boots on the ground, hands-on experience of uh, day-to-day operations. So it's kind of that, that, that's what ultimately took me away from hope. And, and I was obviously the driver of the Manitoba Mountain Project. So it kind of stalled out at that point in time. And uh, as we kind of shifted gears. Do you think there's still hope for that project? Could Manitoba Mountain be resurrected? You know, I, I think God, the terrain there is so unique. You know, you try to put together the right recipe of terrain you know, a beginner terrain and expert terrain and good snowfall and road access, access to utilities. You know, there's all these little recipes that need to come together. And and I think it still has an amazing recipe for a small community ski area. Um, I don't know right now that there's, uh, as you know, this 
developing a new ski area is in a mammoth undertaking that's hugely capital intensive. And so in the absence of somebody that's willing to put in the work, I don't see anything really happening with that. And at that point in time was before Hatcher Pass up north of uh, Girdwood, north of Anchorage, was able to uh, get their first chairlift installed. I think they have amazing potential there as well. So that kind of splits the crowd a little bit. Alyeska gets so much visitation from Anchorage. They're kind of at their carrying capacity point. And amazing terrain at Alyeska, but due to the nature of their avalanche terrain and their dynamics of their terrain, really hard for them to expand in many areas. So I think as Hatcher Pass grow, grows, we'll see some of those anchored skiers starting to go up that direction. So you start this Mountain Riders Alliance. What were you able to achieve with that organization? And ultimately, what was the fate of that group? So our efforts with Mountain Riders Alliance is what brought me to Mount Abram. So Jamie Sheckman and Pete Blanchard uh, kind of led the way, I'd say, broke trail. And, and we started talking with the owners there at Mount Abram. They were kind of looking for a potential way out as the uh, owning a small ski area uh, doesn't meet the dreams of what some owners think it might um, <laughs> as they think, oh, this will be great. The ski area is for sale. Look at how cheap. Yeah, we've got our second home here. Let's let's buy the ski area. This is going to be great. And then reality sets in, you know, as as all of us that are operating ski areas know the challenges of running a ski area and the immense need uh and how hungry we are for capital. So Jamie and Pete uh, spent a first winter out at Mount Abram doing marketing and kind of spinning the Mountain Riders Alliance message of sustainability, stewardship for the environment, and caring for the community will lead to profits. And uh, I went and visited everyone, made some great relationships. The GM at the time of, of Mount Abram decided to not return. It kind of was a natural fit. I'd already made a good relationship with the owners. Pete and Jamie were there. So I kind of slid into the nook. Um, and then Jamie continued to spread out and look for other smaller mountains. We had a lot of conversations with other mountains as we had attempted to put together uh, some co-op models. Uh, Jamie ended up doing a season at Mount Ashland, running their marketing department there as they were in a point of transition. And helped to bring uh, Hiram Toll. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know Hiram. He's uh, just another amazing human. I you know, was on the chamber in uh, Bethel when I was there. Hiram was in management up at Sunday River. and Amazing individual. He just finished up a, a great tour there at Mount, a uh, Mount Ashland. So Jamie helped to uh, to connect up Hiram with Mount Ashland and and another great nonprofit community ski area. Hiram just made his move to Bridger Bowl. Couldn't be happier for him there, man. Yep. And uh, then Jamie also helped the Antelope Butte Foundation in Montana. You know, come up with a good operating model. They talked about some co-op ownerships and just help them kind of sink their teeth into what it was going to take to get that mountain back up and open which it is now. So then Jamie ended up taking a great opportunity. He's uh, based in June Lake now, um, has the T-Bar Social Club, little music venue and a pizzeria right there in June Lake. So he's got a nice Beautiful. little routine going right now. I think he's been there five years. It's amazing how the time flies by. <laughs> so we kind of officially agreed to disband Mountain Riders Alliance in uh, 2021 put me on the pathway that I'm on, uh, led Jamie to a great pathway, collaborating with folks in the ski industry and happy to see 
you know, all of these reciprocal pass programs helping to support the little guys now. So, you know, we were kind of, I think still maybe a little bit ahead of our time, but it was, it was a great mission and I wouldn't be where I was, where I'm at today if it wasn't for the work that we all did together. So let's focus on Mount Abram for a moment here and set this up for us, Dave. Mount Abram, for the listeners who aren't familiar, is uh, depending on how you characterize it, either a small or mid-sized scary in Maine. And, and its big challenge, from my point of view, existentially is it's 20 minutes from Sunday River. Yeah. Which right. is one of the largest and most popular ski areas in New England and, and very well capitalized, owned by Boyne Resorts, run by some great folks. But, you know, that puts Mount Abram into a corner. So, so what were the challenges that Mount Abram was facing when you showed up and how did you go about approaching that for your four years there? Yeah. Oh, great lead in, you know, we, we talk about Sunday river as the thousand pound gorilla up the road, you know, and it's watching this stream of cars drive by our access road. So like many mountains, you know, we had two double chairs and, you know, a 900 vertical foot T bar, really actually pretty good terrain, good pitch, about a thousand vertical, but was going through the plight of so many small ski areas, you know, was originally founded and, and developed by an amazing local family, the Cross family. They were loggers. They uh, actually started operations around the same time as Sunday River. And then as time went on, they, Sunday River just kept investing in snowmaking and, and going in kind of a different pathway than, than Mount Abram went over history. And so I think by the time I made it there, uh, the ownership group at the time, two private owners running the mountain under an LLC format, they were the fifth ownership group in 20 years. So you can imagine what that looks like. When I got there, uh, snowmaking system, we could run 13 guns if we were really tweaking the system at the same point in time. And so it was tough, you know, changing climate. It was tough to have the consistency and get open and uh, make sure we could make the trains run on time. So that was a big focus of ours. Mount Abram was already doing some great things on environmental sustainability they had a wood pellet fired boiler system for their base lodge. Great place for that with all the logging and forestry that was happening. We had great accessibility. And they already had the beginnings of a, an amazing project for a on-site solar farm. So when I was there, I helped to complete that 802 solar panels. We basically ended up producing three quarters of our total electrical powers from our solar farm. And then we, thankfully, I was able to convince the ownership to do a big improvement on our snowmaking system. So redesigned our whole pumping side of the snowmaking system. Got some new tech, airless stick guns from Italy that we tried for a while and dramatically changed things. We went from running 13 guns at one time to running 50. So all of a sudden we could cover top to bottom coverage of our one main trail to the top of the main chair. We could cover in one run. So what used to take us three weeks of good prime snowmaking weather to open the mountain, we could do it in a week. And so that was a game changer for us. Let us really expand our racing program. We got back to doing a lot of nighttime high school racing, a lot of uh, private rentals for race training for some of the high school groups, and just really built the confidence of the local community that we were going to be open, that we were going to be there. We were going to make snow every chance we could. We had the firepower to do it effectively and quickly, 
and then continued to look for other opportunities. You know, we were doing a lot of glading of the local uh, uh, tree runs and just expanding the mountain and trying to expand out our, our appeal as being the affordable, dependable mountain that was still in good proximity to Portland. So when you showed up at Mount Abram, had you ever skied the East before? And what was your impression of East Coast skiing and East Coast ski culture? Yeah, that I had never skied the East Coast. But as you can imagine, you know, I had in my mind what it was going to be, obviously being right. a Midwestern skier. You know, I, I assumed it was going to be uh, 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 similar to Midwest, but on steroids, right? Right. And, uh, but always knew that the East Coast had a ton of passion for for skiing, right? New York State, the state with the high, the most ski areas. Who would ever think, right? So right. I knew the passion was there, and it is. Man, they're passionate for it, you know, and, and watch the culture evolve. It seemed like, you know, the first year I was there, obviously people like to ski the new snow, but um, more of our clientele wanted it groomed. Mm-hmm. Saw that evolve as the East Coast skiers started to get wider skis and liked the powder days and – uh, liked climbing the mountain and skiing in the woods. And, uh, so it was cool to kind of just continue watching that grow, but God, the passion of the East coast skiers is, is real, man. There's a great ski culture there. And, uh, the Mainers, you know, I love the Mainers. The, they were so welcoming to us. And I, I kind of didn't expect that to be honest, you know, really? no offense to the East coasters, but you know, I always, you know, thought and heard of the Boston attitude and, and all of this. And, you know, Maine's still pretty rural, you know, forestry's a lifeblood of the industry up there. And, you know, so I didn't know what to expect, but man, the Mainers were so warm and welcoming to us. And it probably helped that I was coming to Maine from Alaska. I think it made Mm it, um, uh, maybe gave me a little upper hand that they knew I wasn't just some dumb city slicker, you know, and I, I was coming there and I uh, brought three chainsaws and knew how to wield them all very well. And uh, I think that helped me fit in. Right. And I was a hands on guy. I liked operations. I like to get down into the nuances and I'd be out there uh, every single time we'd start up snowmaking. I was out there with the whole crew because when the temps were on, I wanted all of our gear running very quickly. So I would mm-hmm. stay until all the gear was on and running. Then I'd go home and sleep. You know, so I think people like that hands-on approach. They like seeing me, you know, being out there and making the trains run on time and making sure we are uh, killing it as hard as we could. Yeah, I have to say I've always felt very welcome in Maine. And, you know, I live in New York, grew up in Michigan, so I have no roots there. But the, the folks up there are just so nice, so cool. I actually broke my leg skiing up there a year ago, and I I could not have been better taken care of as far as, getting me down the mountain, making sure I had good care, getting me home. It, it was really a phenomenal experience. And I have a very, very high opinion of folks in Maine. And, and it sounds like you had a really good stay there, Dave. And ultimately, Alaska called you back. How did the opportunity come up to run Eagle Crest? And why was that appealing to you? Yeah, oh, that's great. So when I, uh, obviously, we were super tight in the Alaska ski community, you know, being first tram uh, midweek skiers at Alyeska every single day. And, you know, all of our friends were heli guides. And, you know, we were doing first descents all the time out the back door on the sleds. And, you know, we were getting after it, you know. So when I told everybody I was moving to Maine, you should have seen the looks on their faces. They thought I was insane. You know, here I am skiing a hundred days a year, you know, and the t-shirt business mm-hmm. was making it possible. 
we had a good lifestyle, but for some reason, I, I wanted to be deeper into the industry and, you know, as to the point in my life where uh, maybe I should think about a career that could give me a retirement, you know, so I, I was always taking the opportunity to run Mount Abram as, as like my internship, as, as my, my college degree, so to speak, you know, and, and always with the dream of being able to take that experience and come back West and ideally come back to Alaska, but I knew that that was fairly unlikely, being that Alaska was pretty anchored in with their management team. And obviously, I'd always heard amazing stories about Eagle Crest. I'd never skied Eagle Crest before, but I had met, they had a relatively new GM as well that I had met when we were in Juneau for a sales event for a t-shirt company. And he was a younger guy, about my age, you know. And so I, here I was thinking, there's no way he's ever going to give that up. So Eagle Crest <laughs> probably isn't an opportunity. But my wife right. and I had already started shortlist out, you know, okay, well, if we could choose which mountain we'd like to go to, where would we want to be, you know? And we don't want to sit in traffic jams and, you know, have this congested ski experience. And, you know, Eagle Crest was kind of on top of the list. You know, so like it, uh, many of my peers probably do, occasionally, you know, drinking coffee in the morning, you pull up the SAM website and you you search, you, you peruse the classified ads and it wasn't even a particular morning where I might have been burned out, you know, mid-February. And I saw the ad listing for Eagle Crest General Manager and about fell on my face. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was at, at Mount Abram as general manager, my wife was food and beverage manager. So she, I go and get the mountain opened up and she was, I go track her down after she had the cafeterias open and, you know, kind of threw it out at her like, Hey, the Eagle Crest general manager position's open. What do you, what do you think? You know, should we put our hat in the ring? And she's like mm-hmm. instantaneous, hard. <laughs> yes. Right. So. <laughs> I go, all right, let's do this. And uh, threw my hat in the ring. And uh, being that Eagle Crest is owned by the city and borough of Juneau, they have a pretty intense recruitment process. So I think they had maybe 20, 25 applicants at the time. And uh, I finally made the finalist list. They flew me up. And actually, one of our other GMs from a neighboring mountain was in the runnings as well. And and uh, so it came up for this like super intense three-day uh, recruitment process, skills labs and public meetings and uh, really intense. Lo and behold, I, I got the honor of, of getting the position and uh, I kind of felt like it was a coming back home, you know, and uh, so all the stars kind of came together and the GM at the time of Eagle Crest is an East Coaster. And his dream was to uh, someday run Matt River Glen. So that was the trade that was made. So uh, Matt Lillard's <laughs> his name. He's uh, has the pleasure of being general manager at uh, Mad River Glen, uh, the icon of the East. So he got to mm-hmm. fulfill his dream. And uh, I got to come back to Alaska and fill my dream. So um, really just kind of the, the way everything went down was really perfect for everyone. So you take the baton from Matt, and, and Matt's been on the podcast, so I'm completing the circle here with the uh, with the Eagle Crest trade-off. So you arrive, what was working well, and what were the opportunities for Eagle Crest to improve? Yeah, you bet. So um, amazing community ski area, great leadership team, just doing so much great community outreach with our Learn to Ski programming, and really serving the community really well, you know, so it was a great 
spot for me to come in and allowed me to come in and kind of watch the operations because they had such a tenured senior management team that I got to come in and kind of watch the wheels spin. And uh, the first thing that, that obviously came out, we talked at the start about our crazy weather. And when I got here, we only had four snow guns. And previous, uh, during Matt Lillard's tenure, they had a, a warm year where they were only able to open the upper mountain for five days. And you can imagine wow. what that did to the confidence of the season's pass holders. And being a small town of 30,000 people with no drive up market, the season's pass holders are what make it work. So it just crushed their ongoing season's pass sales. The year after that, they were kind of in a warm period, was warm as well. They struggled to pull out another full season. So that was with the experience I had at Mount Abram. I had just built an entire, you know, 1,200 gallon a minute pumping station and, and, and expanded our snowmaking. I knew how this worked. I knew what it looked like. I've done it. I've lived it. And so that was the first thing I did was expanding our snowmaking, you know, so, uh, and hard to get resources from the city assembly. There's good and bad. Thankfully, I had an assembly member at that point in time who's, who's actually now uh, just got appointed to our board of directors, was a huge advocate for this. So my second year, he gave us a $250,000 appropriation of funds. And so that allowed us to expand, uh, to run some new snowmaking pipe, put in a, a used water pumping station that uh, I've done a lot of work with Jason from CHS Snowmakers. Uh, he kind of helps all these little guys disperse out some good used uh, resort equipment. So that was a game changer uh, on the snowmaking side of things. Our water source is halfway up the mountain. So at, when I arrived, we were all a gravity fed system. And so we didn't have enough water pressure to make snow more than like a third of the way up the mountain. So we couldn't even make snow to the top of our intermediate chair. And we'd always have snow at the top, but it was connecting back down to the bottom. We just didn't have the snowmaking ability or the water pressure to do that. So we ran 2,000 feet of snowmaking pipe, a small 500-gallon-a-minute water pump to let us pump up to the top of that intermediate chair. And, and my mindset was always creating our infrastructure so we could have man-made snow on the three main arteries from the left side of the mountain, down the center, and from the right side of the mountain. So we've continued to chip away. We've done some local fundraising to lay some more, uh, some more water pipe. We've transitioned our old, real thin wall water pipe into central air. And so we're just moving the needle. And it's just, it's been dramatic for us. You know, people have the faith. They know we're going to be open. They see me out there. We just, we give it everything we've got. If we've got temps, we're making snow. And we're just burying the base area. We're going on that mindset. We're, we're laying down our three main artery trails. We know we're going to have snow up top. We just need to fill in the pathways to get us off the top of the mountain. And then COVID was great to us, right? It, some of the people that might have still been sitting on the sidelines from those bad snow years, when COVID happened, it brought them back to the mountain. And they were kind of, holy crap, I forgot how much I love this. <laughs> and, you know, we've retained them. So that's been a really really positive thing from a winter operations standpoint. So you mentioned the city a number of times, it's a city owned ski area. Is it a nonprofit ski area? Kind of lay this out for us. How is Eagle Crest 
run? Who runs it? How is it funded? Is, is it a for-profit place or, or what, what's the whole arrangement here? Yeah, no, that's great. It's super unique, right? There's not many of us out there. One of the few mountains that's probably a similar structure would be Gunstock, you know, and we all saw, you know, last year kind of how that can go, you know, so we're basically a department of the city. So we're owned and operated by the city of Juneau. I'm a city employee. We're all city employees. So we wouldn't have the ski area if it wasn't for, uh, we call it general fund support from the city. So the city contributes, um, fluctuates depending on the budget season, around 850000 for operations. Usually I'll get another 250000 for capital improvements. Um, so they make it happen. But as you can imagine, in a small town, there is plenty of politics associated with that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's right. people that don't ski and think we're just entitled. And why are we spending city dollars on skiing? It's just an elitist sport, you know, and, and this whole mindset. So, you know, you get the good with the bad. You know, and and uh, obviously we try to make sure our city assembly members understand the importance of Eagle Crest to the community holistically of keeping families here, attracting new families, putting kids in the schools, supporting our restaurants, our hotels in the wintertime and, and the kind of the winter portion of the visitor industry, you know, and, and the assembly has been supportive, you know, and I've, I, I have pushed them very hard to come out of their comfort zone and do some progressive things to make the mountain more independently financially sustainable. Do you think that over time that you can get to independent financial sustainability? Is that a goal of yours? Yeah, hundred percent. That's, that's a primary goal of mine. And we're going down the pathway that I know is going to get us there. And we're such a unique situation because we have this rapidly growing, vigorous, summer tourism industry. You know, and that was the other thing I saw when I got here. Obviously, being in New England, I was watching how successful some mountains were with mountain bike operations, with summer operations, you know, studied uh, everything that Killington was doing and some of the successes of the other mountain bike parks. And, And then coming up here, the year I started, the year before I started, we'll go back to maybe 2016, Juno attracted 1 million summer cruise visitors. By my second year, we were up to 1.3 million cruise Ooh, visitors. Geez. And all of a sudden, what at one point in time was, oh, Eagle Crest shouldn't be in summer operations because we're competing with the private sector. Hmm. Now all the pri- a lot of the private tour operators are coming to me looking to expand their business, starving for places to take visitors. So I, you know, took my experience from in being in New England and studying summer operations and started to really wind up what a summer adventure center at EcoCrest might look like. And we were making really great headway. Um, we had some really good plans. We had some uh, partnership interest from one of the major cruise lines and being a capital partner in this. And then COVID happened. And so that kind of obviously put the brakes on on some of that and uh, and made us take a pause. Uh, meanwhile, my board made it very clear that they did not want me to let off the gas pedal because we all saw this as our future. And so kind of continued to explore the planning. And, and it was really kind of an interesting exercise for me to watch COVID happen 
and see what activities were still valid during the COVID era. You know, activities that didn't require a lot of touch points, didn't require a lot of staff, and kind of evolved our thought process on what this might look like. And and obviously, this needs very real capital dollars. So throughout this kind of how do we capitalize this, knowing this would be our pathway to being more financially sustainable on our own and allowing us a different financial mechanism to grow the winter experience without needing the pressure of putting more butts in the chairs. So it sounds like you have quite a few potential pathways to growth. It seems like one of them is helping to expand Eagle Crest skier constituency beyond this hyper-local market that you're describing. And, you know, I, I really began to appreciate this as I was prepping for this interview, how easy Eagle Crest is to get to. And it's, I think it's in our head that Alaska is far, but if I'm in Seattle, right, which we all know all the Washington state skiers are bursting at the seams. There's not that many of them. The mega passes are, are really driving more traffic than a lot of them can handle and the infrastructure can handle. So if I decide I want to try out Eagle Crest, what does that journey look like from Seattle up to Alaska to get my butt in a chairlift? Yeah, no, it's, it's so great. And it's so true. You know, Alaska seems so uh, I guess I'll use the word exotic and hard to reach and out of reach, but we're really not, you know, we're like a two and a half hour flight from Seattle, you know? So uh, we've, we've really been trying to push that message out and let people know how actually easy it is to get to us and how close we are. And the reality is if you lived in Seattle, you could be sitting on the chair at Eagle Crest before you could be sitting on the chair most days at Crystal or at Stevens. By the time you sit in traffic and fight through the parking lot and all of the everything that goes along with the crowds, you could be on the chair sooner. And we've started to have people figure that out. You know, last year we we had uh, some folks that were Stevens Pass skiers that I think they might have actually bought Seasons Passes this year because it was so easy. And uh, that allowed us to really... Uh, you know, that's the message we're trying to get out there, you know, that we are really close. And uh, one of our programs that we have is our Alaska Airlines boarding pass program. So Mm -hmm. from some destinations, it works better than others, but you could get the morning flight from Seattle and you can be up, you can land on the ground. Uh, Some of the flights land at 730. It gives you tons of time to get a rental car and get up to the mountain and, and be to the ticket window before first chair. And you bring your boarding pass that shows that you just landed and got off the plane. We're going to give you one free ticket. Amazing. So we're trying to encourage people to get here. And this is us. You know, um, I think it'd be easy for some folks to be a little critical of us being a, a part of so many of these partner programs. But this is an easy way for us to get our message out as we're trying to to grow a little bit. And it's the conundrum of a ski area operator, right, versus the locals. It's like, I need to make the numbers work, you know, and it's easy for some of our local regulars to not want to see anything change. They don't want me telling anybody about it. They want their private powder stash. And I like that as much as anyone. But the reality is the cost of operations are going up. You know, our our, uh, Eagle Crest wage scale is not the same wage scale as other city departments, you know, and I need to raise wages insurance costs and everything's going up and, you know, and, and all of us industry peers, we're, we're all living that, you know? So 
that breeds the fact that we have to evolve. We need to change. We need to find new revenue streams. We need to uh, make sure the assembly knows our value to the community, you know, that we're supporting the whole community with a lot of indirect economic impact by bringing in outside visitors and, and buffering ourselves a little bit. You know, so all of our partnerships and all of our reciprocal programs is a great way to get the message out and try to reduce that barrier of entry and reduce that hurdle and just make it uh, try to help people believe or realize just how accessible we are and uh, come and experience us. And it's just kind of a magical place, you know, so this is an easy way for us to get that message out there and try to attract people and get them to realize our accessibility. So I track these things pretty closely, and as far as reciprocal programs go, you have one of the most robust in North America. As I mentioned in the intro, you're a member of the Powder Alliance, you're a member of the Freedom Pass, also the Indy Pass. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's set that aside because that's a little different. And then you have a bunch of independent partnerships with the likes of Diamond Peak, Lookout Pass, Monarch, these really great independent mid-sized ski areas like Eagle Crest. How much work have you done, Dave? I'm not sure how much of this was in place when you arrived six years ago. How much work have you done to build up this alliance, these coalitions? And how is it working? Are you seeing visitors, curious visitors coming up from White Pass or Mission Ridge or Timberline, Oregon, and just saying, we want to see what this is all about? Yeah. When we have arrivals that are on our reciprocal programs, we can track them really well. And, and we're really trying to make sure we're tracking all of their other visits that may not be a redemption on our partner agreements, but it's working. And we had some of it in place, but we really turned up the volume during my time. Previous marketing manager, Charlie Harrington, really put the steroids to it. And he was the one that just kept grinding to get in the Powder Alliance program and they were very skeptical for a while, but he just kept grinding away at them and uh, finally uh, got got us in their program, which we were really happy about. So Charlie really kind of turned up the volume. He's now working with Steep Motion uh, Media. He got them to come up to do our video, uh, the passage that you were, spoke of earlier. And so now we're just trying to keep that momentum and keep that volume turned up. Did our first foray this year. We came down to the Boston Ski Show try to spread our message uh, with those uh, passionate East Coast skiers because we know they all dream of kind of a more exotic Western ski vacations. And we've got a lot of partnered mountains that are in programs that are around that Boston metro area. So this was our first year coming down and trying to spread that message and make sure people know that we're here. And it is working. We're, we're seeing kind of steady growth on it. You know, we may get to a point where uh, we're seeing that outside visitation numbers where we want it, and we start to pair that back. But for right now, I see us kind of holding the course for at least another two or three years, at least probably through our opening uh, winter operating year on the new gondola and uh, try to get people knowing where we're at. Yeah, it's funny. I was at the Boston Ski Show. I did a live podcast with JP General Manager Steve Wright, and I was wandering around afterward, and I saw the Eagle Crest booth, and I walked up, and I was like, hey, is Kristen here? And sure enough, there she was. And we chatted for a few minutes. So so it was a really great looking booth. I don't think you were there, but um, but yeah, it definitely made an impact. You know, the, the Indy Pass, I want to talk about that for a moment. It seems like the Indy Pass achieved a lot of in spirit what you were trying to do with the Mountain Riders Allowance Alliance. So talk about the Indy Pass. You were an early member of this coalition how that's worked out for you so far and just your perception of 
what that's done to help small ski areas, independent ski areas around the continent. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and very excited to be part of Indy Pass. And it, it has been great to see them grow. And I think they, they have really manifested a lot of our original vision with Mountain Riders Alliance. And it's just amazing how they're growing participation in their program, you know, and it's, it's just another way that, that our small mountains can, can have awareness and be part of a bigger, a bigger program. So it's worked out well for us. Every year we're growing the redemptions with Indy Pass a decent bit. Again, you know, it, it is a commitment still to, to make a decision to come to Eagle Crest. And, and we know we need to kind of stay the course and run the course because change is slow in the ski industry. You know, the things you do one year, you're probably not going to see the fruits of it until a year or two down the road as people need to think about and, and they're planning early where they're going to go for their ski trips. You know, and that was part of our thing of being in New England, you know, timing of the famous New England February break. You know, everybody's looking to travel around this time of year. So we want people to know we're here, you know, and I'm very happy to have Kristen now. I hope she sticks with us for a while. She's she's a hardcore skier from Mount Bachelor. I've been a snow brains rider for years. So we're really happy to get her in to kind of continue the good work that that Charlie had done and keep keep working with Indy Pass and these other programs. So you mentioned that gondola a moment ago, Dave, and this is a really exciting project. And, you know, I, I don't want to overstate things here, but I was I hosted Taylor Middleton, the longtime CEO of Big Sky, on the podcast last year. And and he's been there since the early 80s. And he talked about the dramatic change that installing the Lone Peak tram had on that mountain and the perception of that mountain and how people thought about that mountain and how aware people were of that mountain. Obviously, this is still a smaller operation, but this gondola that you're putting in could have a a similar transformative effect as far as putting this place on the map. So, so talk to me about the gondola. Lay this out for us. What are you putting in? How, what's your timeline? And why are you doing this? Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I can't let this get lost either because the the correlation to the Lone Peak Tram and, uh, you know, as we were first starting out with with Mountain Riders Alliance, Jamie Sheckman put us in in contact with John Kim Kircher and what an icon and and such a tragedy our loss with John and and his vision for Big Sky and and what he did with the Lone Peak Tram. And we went down and visited them for a couple days at Crystal and that has just memory has just stuck with me. Of course, we're out for dinner and talking about connecting up for him to tour us around the mountain the the next day. And he says, Oh, I'll be there early. You know, we're going to be making some snow. I got to make sure the the snow guns get in the right spot, you know, and talk about another hands-on manager and and a guy with amazing vision and passion and the way he did things, you know, and, uh, God, I aspire to just follow that, that direction. And I think this has that same potential for us, right? You know, and and I, I see it having the ability to do the same thing as far as really changing the scope of, of what we are in the winter and, and, and how we're operating. But the real deal on this is the summer experience, right? So we got to put more gas in the tank as obviously I'm a very passionate expert skier. I want more expert ski train, but that comes with a real cost. I'm going to need a lot more patrol staff. We're going to be buying a lot more info. We're going to be doing a lot more avalanche mitigation work, but we got it. We, we have to pay for the cost of a bigger winter operation. 
And so it goes back to our summer cruise industry. You know, we are forecasted this summer to have 1.6 million summer cruise visitors come to Juneau, Alaska. Unreal. It is just an amazing opportunity that I don't know if there's another ski area that has this opportunity. We're 25-minute bus ride from the cruise port, Mm -hmm. a town with a population of 30,000 people that may see 20,000 visitors come on our (laughs) big days of the week. And they're all looking for an experience, right? So then it comes to me of how do I find the money to do this? How do I take advantage of this amazing opportunity to put the cash in the pocket that I need to turn Eagle Crest into the best ski area in the world? And I, you know, it's, easy, it's easy to kind of laugh at that. But the terrain that we have in our proximity that we have the potential to expand into, the way we get our snow, how we get our snow, the low density skiing experience that we already have and our ability to expand that even more is what's really driving my vision. And we don't need high capacity lifts, right? We don't really need high speed quads or, you know, a 12 passenger detachable gondola. So as you mentioned, this is really unique. And over the last uh, four or five years, I had been, well, four or five years ago to start all of this, I had been contacted by a gentleman, Zrinko Amaral with Steelhead Systems. And his company was looking for small ski areas to uh, relocate uh, some goody, good ski lifts from Europe into North America. Uh, the first example or their first success was with Mission Ridge with their Wenatchee Express lift a couple of years ago was one of the first lifts that they um, successfully brought over to North America. So Europe's got different equipment, you know, and and uh, what we've purchased through them is a fixed grip pulsing gondola. So a lot of people aren't familiar with what is that and what attracted me most to it is it's a really low tech piece of equipment without a lot of electronics, without a lot of moving parts, basically a fixed grip gondola. Um, many people, probably the closest comparison that uh, people that are experts in the industry will know, uh, Le Grave in France, one of the most iconic pulsing gondolas that are out there. So our gondola is going to be set up with four pods of three cabins that will circulate in, in evenly spaced pods. Each cabin's a 15-passenger cabin. So imagine the Lone Peak uh, uh, tram cabin, but three of them traveling together in a cluster. So we're um, also going to be building and and adding in a midway load and unload station. So when you have a pod of three cabins at the top and the bottom, you're also going to have a pod of three cabins at the exact midway point on the line, which happens to be in this perfect flat basin at the bottom of all of our best steep terrain on the upper part of the mountain. You, you couldn't have designed the, the geometry of our terrain better to accommodate this. So this is a, an affordable way for us to make this big step and create this uh, summer visitor experience to take advantage of these summer cruising tourists and generate some revenue for us to keep growing the winter experience of the mountain into the future. What is the vertical drop? What is the vertical rise of this lift going to be? 
Yeah, so the total vertical rise top to bottom of the lift is going to be almost 1,600 verticals. So 1,590 vertical is going to be total vertical top to bottom. The length of the lift, it's pretty long. This is going to be almost a 7,000 foot long lift. Mm, so this could wow. be a long lift, but it's going to operate more like a tram. So total ride time top to bottom is only going to be seven and a half minutes. Wow. So uh, she's she's a fast runner. Once uh, the cabins leave the station, she zips along probably the speed of a tram. Where is it going to load and where is the top station going to be? Sure. So it's going to load right at the base of the mountain, uh, right adjacent. If, if folks are take a look after this at our trail map, right adjacent to the bottom of our Hooter chairlift, of our intermediate chairlift, there's a nice big open meadow there. So that's where the base station is going to load. Um, if you're looking at the trail map, our midway station is going to be at the bottom of the ski trail Raven, real close to Cropley Lake on our map. And then the top is going to be our highest point on Pittman's Ridge that the locals call Stairway to Heavenly. Um, Heavenly <laughs> Valley is our uh, side country terrain that's currently out of bounds. So the lift alignment is going to go real close to our far skiery boundary on the climber's right side to the highest point possible on Pittman's Ridge. So it's really going to open up uh, what used to be a hike to terrain on Pittman's Ridge. It's going to make that direct drive. We'll be bringing that Heavenly Valley terrain uh, inbounds and working with patrol right now. We're going to be likely bringing all the Hogsback Mountain terrain inbounds as well. So this is some really good, steep, dynamic, expert terrain that's going to allow us to bring that inbounds right now um, as we go forward with this. Unbelievable. So I'm looking at the trail map, and this will be with the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com for the folks listening. So if you look, lookers right on the current trail map, there's what looks like a huge open bowl with a lot of cliffs, then trees and a lake down toward the bottom. How much acreage are we talking about there, Dave? How much bigger is this going to make the ski area? And will that be immediate when you put the lift in, or are you going to need a little time to get that right? We may uh, be one more year before we bring uh, bring that terrain that you can see. The the Heavenly Valley terrain, you can't really see well on the geometry of the trail map because it's kind of running parallel with your vertical view. What you're seeing is that Hogsback Mountain. So that may be another one more year out after we get up and going. But we're going to try to bring all of this into the new operations as quickly as we can. So I should have pulled that acreage of that little pod there, of of that additional pod. I I think we're probably looking at around another 300 acres. Amazing. So what's the local reaction been like to this? Because there's always this contingent that is very protective of their haiku terrain. And you can see that at Alta, for example, where the best terrain tends to be reserved for the hikers. And some folks, I would imagine, are really happy that you're putting a lift up there. Others are going to mourn the loss of their private powder stash or human-powered powder stash. What's the reaction been like, Dave? And what's been your message for folks who maybe are disappointed that they might lose their private ski area? Yeah, no, and you're exactly right. You know, And I do carry some guilt of polarizing our ski community. Um, it helps the fact that I'm out there. You know, I, I make an effort to put the skis on every day for an hour in the morning. I'm only marginally successful, maybe 50% of the time as uh, things always get busy. Uh, but they know my passions. They know I'm a passionate skier and, and I get it. I, I'm doing it from the best intent. Um, but as you can imagine, like you said, some of them aren't too happy with it, you know, of losing their you know, little private ski experience. They don't want anybody else coming. But they don't have to answer to the budget bottom line, right? They don't have to look at the numbers. 
They don't have to um, deal with employees leaving because they can make five more dollars an hour working at McDonald's than they can bumping lifts. They don't need to make it work. So the reality is if we weren't growing and uh, expanding like this and creating this new revenue stream, the ski area is not likely sustainable, even with support from the city assembly. There's only so much budget dollars, uh, municipal budget dollars out there to support the ski area. So if they want to keep their little private powder stash, something needs to change. And, uh, you know, even to the fact of, you know, there's a certain crowd of people that are like, fine, let, let Eagle Crush close. It doesn't matter. We'll, we'll still get to go touring. It'll be great. And obviously they feel fail to realize that the $75,000 that I pay the state department of transportation every year is what keeps the road plowed into the parking lot. If we close, there'd be a gate at the bottom of the road. So you wouldn't even be able to access Eagle Crest to go touring. So the fact of the matter is, is yeah, this is going to be a change. It's been hard for some people to understand the amount of acreage that we're going to be able to pursue over the next 10 years and the way we're going to change the ski experience. It's going to change the traffic patterns on the mountain. I think for the better, you know, we're going to be spreading people out over more terrain. We're going to be able to afford to do more avalanche mitigation you know, to protect the youngsters that maybe aren't Abby savvy and are going into our side country terrain. And there's going to be so many days we're still hard to get to. And yeah, people are going to find us. This gondola is going to put us on the map, but we've got so much area to spread people out. And when we have financial resources, we're going to be able to continue spreading out. So I think it's just going to overall be a dramatic improvement to the, to the skiing experience. And I think those folks that are skeptical or maybe against I think once this is all in and they get to experience it, I think they're going to they're gonna love it as well. So I want to make this point for folks listening. This is not a replacement lift. Eagle Crest has four double chairs now. It will have four double chairs plus a gondola. So this is an all-new line. It's additive. So how do you anticipate that changing the way the mountain skis? And then long-term, how are you thinking about those four double chairs? Some of them are quite old, dating to the 70s when the resort opened. Some of them are newer. But what, what's your thinking long-term on the lift fleet as you see how the Pulse Gondola changes the way the Eagle Crest sets up and skis every day? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so um, we are mountain of four riblet double chairs, right? And, and riblet's uh, time in the industry is uh, sunsetting, right? Most people are looking to remove their riblets as parts are becoming harder to find good old trusty machines. Right. So, um, and I'm glad you pointed out, this is an additive lift. And Mm -hmm. as I've already mentioned, this is going to give us financial capacity. This is going to give us the resources we need to start replacing our uh, fleet of older lifts. So as we go forward, I'm, uh, I'm going to be continuing to pursue replacement of our ptarmigan and likely our hooter chair first off. Our, our hooter chair is our intermediate chair. It's our stepping stone. We've got a great uh, ski school that brings a bunch of kids up and keeps our pipeline full of the next generation of rippers. So we're already actually looking at some, some other lifts from the company that we're working with, some fixed grip quads to hopefully re- get those replaced. But this is going to give us the financial capacity to do that. And there was uh, quite the outrage or talking point when we were looking at purchasing this gondola of uh, a campaign that we should be replacing our ptarmigan chair and not spending money on this gondola. 
But the fact of the matter is, is uh, um, we need an enclosed lift with our summer weather to give people a good experience. And we need access to the top of that ridge line where the gondola is going to offload in the summertime. It's amazing. 360 degrees views. You're looking down at the inside passage, at Stevens Passage, at the oceans, uh, Admiralty Island National Park. You can even see part of Mendenhall Glacier from the top of the mountain. So it's just, it's the viewpoint. It's that million dollar view, no pun intended. So obviously the goal is giving us gas in the tank, giving us the financial capacity to upgrade some of those, uh, some of our older lifts, make sure we've got that reliability. The location of our Ptarmigan chairlift, the original pioneers of the ski area did a great job. It's a great spot for a lift. It's our most weather protected aspect on the mountain. So as we go forward, we'll be looking to um, increase the capacity of that lift to a likely just with a fixed grip quad. Our clientele seemed to like the peacefulness of a, a little slower ride and dumping a little fewer skiers out on the mountain at, at one time. But I want the capacity as we are having more outside visitors find us and come. If we're on wind hold or weather hold on the gondola or other lifts, we want to be able to circulate people around the mountain and make sure we're not clogged up with big lines at the base area. Do you think you'll be looking at new chairlifts, Dave, or are you going to go for nice, gently used lifts? I think we'd likely be more looking at gently used lifts. However, new lift isn't out of the, out of the question for sure. Um, we'll definitely be exploring all of our options and, you know, we're going to be wanting to put some, uh, continue putting some capital dollars into growing that summer experience, being that that's what's going to be our money generator. So we're already looking at other activities that will be, um, that will be additive to the gondola and make our experience that much more attractive. So that Gandhi's a used lift. You've actually ridden this lift from an account that I read elsewhere, Talk about that trip and that experience and just your impressions riding that thing and what the skiers and summer visitors at Eagle Crest are in for. Yeah, no, um, that was part of our process is uh, we went over in April. So the lift we purchased was from the small little village of Prugern in Austria, which is part of the Schladming Resort Complex. So we went over there with the sales company and with uh, our lift engineer, Jamie Bunch from uh, SCJ Alliance is doing all of our engineering on this lift. Really honored to be able to work with somebody like Jamie. He's been in the industry for a very, very long time and is just a brilliant mind. So we all went and uh, looked under the hood, rode the lift, looked at all their original records, hooked it up to auxiliary, ran it on auxiliary, um, did all the testing we could do to ensure that we were getting a, a well-cared-for lift. Uh, you know, and it is an older lift. So as we do this installation, we're obviously doing all the big things. You know, uh, new gearbox, new motor, new haul rope, bow wheel bearings. All of those uh, big items are going to be fully rebuilt or, or purchased new, new control system. So this lift is going to have a, a long lifespan for us. I think with the fast ride time in the summer, we may even run the rope speed a little slower because uh, part of the ride is is part of the experience. But we're going to have plenty of capacity. Hourly capacity is going to be around 750 passengers per hour. We're envisioning our summer business ranging from seven to 900 visitors per day. You know, so we'll have plenty of capacity to move people around the mountain and do other activities. So. I think this could be a really additive experience uh, 
One of the things we haven't talked about is uh, really honored in this project. We're in the last stages of formalizing a partnership agreement with our local uh, Juno Native Corporation, Gold Belt Native Corporation. They're the operators of the Mount Roberts Tramway. It's an aerial tramway that starts right at our cruise dock and goes up onto the shoulder of the mountain there and gives people a great viewpoint. They are at absolute peak capacity with the amount of visitation we have right now. And I've been working on a relationship with them for a bunch of years. So it was kind of a natural fit. Once the city assembly gave us the funding to get this uh, gondola purchased and heading this way, we started discussing partnership opportunities. So they're going to contribute the capital dollars we need to get this installed and form this long-term partnership together, which is just a natural fit. You know, we're going to be able to share knowledge and resources and, and hopefully some staffing at times. And when they've got an hour and a half wait out their front door, they can easily uh, send some of those people waiting in line up our way and still be participating in all of the tramway systems in Juneau. So what's your timeline look like right now, Dave? You wrote a letter when you took delivery of the of the gondola last year and you were hoping for a 2024 install how are you feeling about that right now and we're, we're recording this on february 13th 2023 for anyone listening yeah no that's great um so what we're anticipating right now we'll see how far we can get this summer we're definitely going to do a lot of our preliminary work this summer we're going to be getting our uh, construction road to the top station doing some blasting at the top station we're also anticipating building a nice little summit lodge building for guests to enjoy their time at the top of the mountain when we get them up there. We'll also be getting our road into the base station. We'll be doing some uh, blasting in a on-hill rock quarry we have at the bottom of the mountain. Ideally, I'd love to see us get some concrete poured for the base station uh, prior to people showing up December 1st for skiing next winter so they can uh, see some exciting progress. But the summer 24 is going to be our big push. That's when uh, all the magic's going to happen. Best case scenario, we'd love to see us uh, commission the gondola sometime uh, February, March of 25 and put us ready to open the gondola for our summer operations in, uh, in May of 25. So looking elsewhere around the mountain, you don't have any surface lifts. You used to have a platter where the porcupine chair is. Do you want a carpet or something like that for beginners long term? Yeah, long term, we'd love to have a carpet for the beginners. Um, I, I see an option as well to maybe have a carpet up at the midway station. We've got a bunch of flat, gradual sloping terrain. Might actually allow us to sell some learn to ski packages for some of the cruise visitors as those cruise boats are arriving earlier and earlier. And sometimes our snowpack uh, withstands well into June at that mid station elevation. So we'll be looking to um, definitely add some conveyors to our to our uh, lift profiles. All right, last thing for you here today, Dave, let's just talk about the terrain real quick because, you know, it's, it's funny because I grew up in the Midwest and every ski area says they have 50 runs and, you know, it's just like a, like you said at Wilmot, it's an open face and it's, uh, you know, East Crusher and West Crusher and they just divide every little thing into, into 10 different runs. You advertise 36 runs on 640 acres which obviously undersells the mountain a little bit. So just talk about the terrain, the ski experience. What would you compare it to maybe that skiers might be familiar with as far as the way the mountain skis that, that really defies that 36 run total? 
Yeah, yeah, you know, I've heard some people kind of describe it as a mini Tahoe, but we do ski every inch of the mountain, you know, truly. You know, the we've done a lot of glading work in our forest and just the natural spacing of our spruce and hemlock forest makes for really good riding. And, uh, you know, I think one of the unique things that, that I wanted to touch on for folks is you look at our average snow totals, we're at like 350. You know, last year we broke through 500. It was a great season. But it's the way we get our snow and the type of snow we get that is so unique. And you look at our history, right, and, and our streak of getting new snow every day, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll do these really long streaks. And, and so since we're coastal rainforest, a lot, we're getting moisture a lot you know, which can make visibility a little challenging, but we have so many days where, well, you know, our pattern will be like four inches, two inches, five inches, three inches, six inches, two inches, three inches. And we're getting it with, you know, winds in the, you know, mid twenties to 30 knots. And so it's like shaking the etch-a-sketch, right? So you might think, oh, three inches, well, you come up and it's a flat carpet. It's just this smooth, creamy, windblown pow. It's so delicious. And it happens all the time. So you might think, oh, 350, that's not a lot. But when you're getting so many days of these small snow increments, the amount of days you get a powder day and you get smooth, soft, creamy snow, the percentage of that is so much higher, even than like you know, Tahoe mountains, they'll pick up 120 inches in two days and the whole mountain's on wind hold and you're barely getting to use any of it. Conversely, that 100 inches, that translates into, you know, 10, 12 powder days for us, you know? So that's one of our most unique things that I think sets us apart that our statistics don't quite do justice for. I'm sold. All right, Dave, I cannot thank you enough for laying this all out for us today. I think that folks who may not be familiar with Eagle Crest are probably on their way there right now. So thank you very much for this today. I I really enjoyed it. I hope to get up there and ski it for myself one day. But good luck with this gondola project. That is really exciting. And if nothing else, I will try to get up there for when that thing opens. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for having me. Totally honored to be here. And for those of the people listening in, uh, search us out on YouTube. Uh, we've got an amazing uh, videographer and marketing staff. They're doing a great job. We've got some really fun videos on YouTube, really give you a sense of the flavor of the mountain. So check us out there as well. And thanks again, Stuart. It's been a, a true pleasure. That's Dave Scanlon, General Manager of Eagle Crest, Alaska. Thank you so much for that, Dave. That was so much fun. I love the energy, and I love where you're taking the place. Thank you all very much for listening. How did that hit you? There has been, admittedly, a lot of skepticism out there around this gondola project. Did he sell it for you? Personally, for me, he did. I love the vision. When I first heard about this project, I didn't really get it. But hearing Dave lay it out like that, I am sold. I think it's the right move, and I think it is going to transform how the world thinks about Eagle Crest. How about you? Did he win you over? Let me know. More pods coming all the time. I promise you that Whitefish is next. That one has been recorded for a while. Then I will be delivering conversations with the leaders of Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peak, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. 
Remember, the best way to get those episodes the moment they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at StormSkiJournal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.